Well, tonight I want to begin um, looking at the revelation from God or of God which we discover during the period of Moses. We spent a long time in the book of Genesis. Um, but we're now launching out from Genesis into the rest of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And I want to, this evening, just lay down again, I think it's probably going to be some repetition, but to, I want us to proceed on a, on a firm foundation before we go too far into Exodus and um, the rest of the Pentateuch. Because once we get into the laws with the law, the covenant of Moses, there are some controversies, there are some complexities, some disagreements among Christians that can trip us up. And I want to be sure that we've all got the same um, uh, foundation in how we should approach the, this period of revelation under Mo- Moses this series, as you, as, you, as you know, I'm sure you know by now, um, is not a series of character studies. That's a great way of reading the Bible. But this is a slightly different <clears throat> approach. It's an attempt to try to identify and explain the progressive way God has revealed the plan of redemption through Scripture. Um, it's not quite enough to say that the revelation of redemption, the plan of redemption, is progressive. It is progressive, but it's more than that. It's like we said in, I think, at the very first um, session of this series, and not all of us were here at the beginning, of course, and I did think that as I was preparing for tonight, not all of us were even here, even part of the church then. And um, what, what I said at that, that very first study was that the revelation of God, the way he shows the plan of redemption is progressive, but it's also organic, which means it's a bit like a seed that grows into an oak or any kind of tree. Um, if, you look at, if you look at the seed at the beginning, it looks nothing like the final tree, does it? You wouldn't imagine it would look anything like it. Um, but it grows and it becomes a young tree grow some branches and then but in the end it's massive and there's fruit and perhaps there's perhaps there's fruit or nuts or the birds of the air gathering it and um, it's a glorious thing but you know at every point in that tree even when it looks puny it's still the same tree it's not a different tree it may be feeble it may be small it may be weak but it's the same tree all the way through, and that's a little bit, a bit, a little bit like scripture. Um, it, it grows, and there's far more light in some places than in others. Well, more light in the New Testament than the Old Testament. We could make that generalization, but it's still the same tree. It's still the same revelation, and that, therefore, in in the Reformed tradition and in Reformed teaching. It is said, the Reformed teachers say, that both the Old and the New Testaments are one single revelation from God. 
Not, not all Christians believe that. But that is, in our tradition, that's what, that is what we say. It's one single revelation. There's much more light and clarity in the new than in the old. But that's only because there's more maturity, more advancement in the new than in the old. It's the same tree. And what is true about the unity between the Old and the New Testament is also true within the Old Testament itself, the earlier parts of the Old Testament and the later parts of the Old Testament. There's a unity there as well. And a lot of modern, current reform scholarship is is discovering a lot of new insights about the Old Testament's use of the Old Testament. There's been a lot of study about the New Testament's use of the Old, but now there's a lot of study about the Old Testament's use of the Old within itself and the progression there. And this unity, this cohesion between, in, in all the narratives of the Scripture where we see some sections acting as types or models of things that will come that come later sometimes hundreds or thousands of years later we read of prophecies being fulfilled there are consistent messages about the nature and character of god there are running principles throughout about the nature of salvation it's like a dna that a biblical dna which you can detect at any point in the bible Um, This all points to one truth, that the Bible is one single story. And why is it one single story? Because it has one mind behind it, it has one single author. Um, That the author being, of course, the Holy Spirit. The Bible is God's story to us, his message to to us. But it's not like the Quran. It doesn't come pre-packaged down from heaven, all neatly packaged with um, independent of human authors or independent of different types of literature, history, poetry. It doesn't come from just one period in history. But there are many human authors. But behind or we should perhaps say within these human authors at different, in different contexts and different styles of writing, there is one divine author, the Holy Spirit, inspiring and moving upon chosen servants to record the scriptures that we have today. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now that, that word inspiration in the English translation um, is theonoustos in the Greek. Theo, God, noustos, spirit or breath. God's breath. So a better translation would be all scripture is breathed out by God. This Bible is God's breathing out of his word. Um, And all scripture then is breathed out by God. The scripture which we have in our our hands or in our chairs or 
whatever is the breath of God, his voice, his word. And if you doubt God's word, if you challenge God's word, you're really challenging God to his face. You're challenging him to his mouth. Um, it's his word. It's, just, it's as intimate as that. Now God could have, of course, just chosen one prophet. He could have chosen, say, um, Moses. He would have been a good one. Uh, and dictated to him, like, like a, a boss dictating to, a, to his secretary uh, all he wanted to reveal to the world. And, and the, the prophet could have been a note taker and just taken it all down and written the Bible and that would have been it. But that's not how God gave us his word. Um, there is some dictation, not much actually, but there, there are parts where God literally dictates his word. But for the most part, he works within a human author and breathes through that person his word. Over a long period of time in different historical and cultural contexts, using a wide variety of different literature, literary styles and forms. That's why we can't ignore, when we study the Bible, we can't ignore the human author, the, the human context and the human author. And when you come to expound a, a piece of scripture to, to a church or to a Bible study, um, you cannot do that without putting in some hard work, trying to understand what did it mean to the first hearers? What was the context of this scripture? But having done all of that, we still come back to the most important point, is that the true, the, the ultimate, the first author of all scripture is the Holy Spirit himself, using different human authors. Peter said in 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now we don't fully know what that means or looks like, but, but that, that's what inspiration means. The Holy Ghost moving upon holy men. And in a, in a way which is not mechanical or robotic, but real writing in a real historical context, breathing out, God breathing out his word. So coming then to Moses and to the, as we approach the next section of God's revelation, most Christians know that Moses was the author the human author of the five scrolls, as it's known, or the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch. He also wrote, we know, Psalm 90. But beyond that, his influence, Moses' influence upon the whole of Scripture is a huge. Constant reference, references to Moses, and we're not going to do that tonight, but we will as we go through, 
Um, we'll see the influence that Moses has on the whole of Scripture, not just in terms of direct quotation, but allusions all the time to uh, Moses, and particularly the Exodus. Um, we see it in the rest of the Old Testament and in Christ's teaching and in the apostolic epistles. God, this is God's summary of the importance of Moses in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10 to 12. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, in all the signs and the wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And in all that mighty hand and in all the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel. What a, what a reference from God himself. So, the Bible has one divine author. Um, and in the case of the five scrolls, which we're going to go on to study, there is one human author, Moses. And right at the very beginning of Exodus, in the very first verse of chapter 1, um, we see the natural flow and connection between Genesis and Exodus. Um, where it says now, which, is, which, which actually is and in the Hebrew and these are the names of the children of Israel so this is a continuation of the story of Genesis Um, it's not a new book in that sense so much as a new chapter in the story of God's redemption in fact Genesis and and, um, the rest of, of the Pentateuch. Genesis acts as a kind of prologue, it acts as a kind of introduction to the rest of the five books of Moses and indeed to the book of Joshua. And in Genesis 15 verse 13, which we studied at length, God really predicts um, the rest of what is going to happen in Israel's history which we'll go on to study in a minute. But there, in verse chapter 15, verse 13, he said, And he said to Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. Now that's centuries before it happened. Centuries and centuries before Exodus 1. And um, God, in fine detail, tells Abraham what is going to happen. So, redemptively speaking, as we've covered many times, um, this promise of Abraham's seed equates with the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we've recently studied, and I'm not going to repeat all this, we've recently studied the Abrahamic covenant, 
and how the first gospel promise was advanced by the Abrahamic covenant. But it's in, in Exodus we see how God preserves this promised seed in the terrible darkness of Egyptian bondage. And we see, we see uh, literally we see God keeping his covenant promise. So the connection between Genesis, or the Abrahamic covenant, and the rest of the Pentateuch, and indeed the rest of the Old Testament and the New, is this promise to Abraham. It it's flows, this covenant flow, right through Scripture. That's why I spent so long on it. God had made a covenant in Genesis 15, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, and God made six statements in Genesis 15 about what would happen to Abraham's seed in the next epoch of redemptive history. And I should say it's Genesis 15 and verse 13, which would be worth looking at, turning to just for a second. In sermons you can get away with not looking things up, I think, but not, not in Bible studies. We've got to do it together. So the first thing that God predicts in, in um, Genesis 15, verse um, 16, is that the Hebrews would be strangers in a land that was not theirs. Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, verse 13. And the last third of Genesis, and I'm not going to go through it much because Lee has, has explained it all to us. But the last third of Genesis explains how the Hebrews, who were from Canaan, ended up in Egypt. Jacob, as we know, had 12 sons, the youngest of whom was Joseph. Joseph was Jacob's favourite. This provoked jealousy and hatred in the other brothers who sold him to the Midianites, who took him to Egypt, where he was sold as a slave. And only 17 as he was, he kept his faith in God and his purity in the face of temptation. And God used the ups and downs of the circumstances of his life to bring him to a position of great power in Egypt, and by the wisdom God gave him, he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. There was going to be a famine, a seven-year spell of abundance, followed by a seven-year period of famine. And Joseph's emergency plan was so wise, so impressive, that Pharaoh put him in charge of the whole operation, which was essentially storing up grain in the good time in preparation for the bad times. But when the famine came, it didn't just affect Egypt, it affected Canaan, where Joseph's family abode. They had no food, so the brothers went to Egypt to find food and return to their father with food. But through a series of providential events, the brothers were shown the wickedness of their actions. And they repented, and they were reconciled with Joseph. And he took the whole family under his protection, including Father Jacob. And their descendants lived in Egypt for 430 years. 
Paul said that in the epistles, 430 years. God had predicted that, and that's what happened. Secondly, looking again, 15.13 of Genesis, the Hebrews would be made slaves in the land. 13. And shall serve them. And shall serve them. The first asylum seekers were welcomed and protected by Pharaoh, but over time a, a new Pharaoh arose who hadn't even heard of Joseph, and he made the Hebrews into slaves, and their lives were bitter. And he was really trying to kill them slowly. He didn't want to kill them quickly because he wanted those store cities to be built first. So he was killing them slowly with labour. Again, the next thing God predicts is that the Hebrews would be mistreated. Verse 13 of 15, and, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Well, that came true. We read it just now. Exodus 1, verse 13 and 14, And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service were in the made them serve with rigour. And in the end, Pharaoh ordered all the firstborn males to be killed. God, next in in, um, chapter 15 of Genesis, and verse 14, said that the nation that mistreated the Hebrews would be punished. Beginning of verse 14. And also that nation whom thou shalt serve will I judge. Well that came true as well didn't it? The early chapters of Exodus tell us how this happened. This is, remind you, this is centuries before any of this happened. This is why we we can have confidence in the Bible. This is just one example. Thousands of examples of this. Genesis 15 Uh, Sorry, Uh, the early chapters of Genesis tell us how this happened. God judges Egypt by bringing ten plagues upon her. These plagues building in intensity, beginning with a judgment on the river, right up to an excruciating punishment of the firstborn being killed. And because of these judgments in the end, Pharaoh let the people go. And then, fifthly, God predicts, uh, he prophesies to Abraham that the Hebrews would experience a great deliverance and would leave Egypt with many possessions. The second part of Genesis 15, verse 14. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. Mm -hmm. Well, that happened as well. This was fulfilled in Exodus 12 on the night of the Passover. The passing over of the angel of death. The Israelites were spared due to um, the substitutionary death of the lamb whose blood the people were to spread on the lintels of their doors and on the doorposts. Um, Really to show the angel of death that an innocent lamb 
had died in place of the firstborn of that family. And the angel of death would pass over that home. But that night the Israelites left Egypt. But they left Egypt after going around asking to borrow jewellery. Jewels of silver and jewels of gold gold and raiment, the Bible says. Borrow from their neighbour. And and, and scripture says they spoiled the Egyptian. They, They... in some miraculous way, they asked to borrow of their best possessions and they, they, the Egyptians gave the Israelites their gold, their jewellery, their clothes, their silver. And they left well off, they left wealthy with great possessions. And then sixthly, in the fourth generation, God said to Abraham, the Hebrews would return to the land of Canaan. Genesis 15 verse 16. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And we see in the writings of Moses that this return took 40 long years And the actual entrance back into the land of Canaan takes place under Joshua, the successor to Moses. And we read of that story, of course, in the book of Joshua. Now, why did I go through all of that? What I'm wanting to emphasise, and what I want us to be clear about in our minds, is that the covenant with Abraham is the mainspring from which the Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch flows. The Abrahamic covenant, this covenant which Paul equates with the gospel of grace, is not replaced by, is not replaced, is not paused under Moses. It continues. It continues for the elect, the people in the Old and the New Testaments who have been predestinated unto salvation from before the foundation of the world. I want us to understand this before we get into the law and the complexities around the law that that the people in the Old and the New Testament have who have been predestined unto salvation have always been saved on the basis of the covenant of grace. There are national and physical aspects to the Abrahamic covenant which we've studied and these flow into the Mosaic period as well. And I'll try to explain that as we go along. But I want us to hang on to this one essential point that the connection between Genesis and Indeed, the whole of Scripture, but we're just thinking of the Revelation under Moses now. It's the Abrahamic covenant that flows through. It's the spring that gives meaning to all of it. You see, Exodus and the rest of Moses' writing is a covenant narrative. In Exodus, we read of, the, of how the trigger for God responding to the people's cry for deliverance from bondage 
is not just pity. It's more than God's pity. It's more than God feeling sorry for his people, as is often presented. But the trigger of it is, is, is that it's a response by God. It's the response of a covenant-keeping God to his covenant people. Look with me at Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. And, and notice this point. There it says, And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and this is it, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. The trigger for God's responding to the bondage of his people was not just sympathy or pity, it was the fact that he had made a covenant with Abraham. So the God who pledged himself to Abraham and his descendants and his descendants remained the faithful God. He, he made this covenant. He, he made an oath, Genesis 15, that he would keep it, whatever. He would keep it. And here we, for our very eyes, we're reading of a covenant-making God keeping covenant with a covenant people. And God delivered them from Egyptian bondage. Exodus twelve forty one, And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to, pass, came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. God kept his promise. And we read of how, in Numbers particularly, how God cared for them as a loving covenant God through all the long wilderness years. Um, in Deuteronomy 8, we read of how God remembered all the way. Uh, Moses said that the people should remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of, them, out of the Lord doth man live. And he kept them, and finally he gave them the land, which centuries before he had promised to Abraham. Joshua 21 verse 43 And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into the hand. Listen to this. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel, all came to pass. 
Now, why am I going through this in such detail? It's because this, this is we, we sometimes miss the obvious, don't we? That God makes a prediction, makes a prophecy, often hundreds of years in the past, and we read of God fulfilling that promise, that prophecy. And here we, particularly in the connection between Genesis and Exodus and the rest, this, surely this builds confidence in us, doesn't it? This is the word of God. Uh, therefore, if God keeps his word in the past, he'll keep his word in the present and in the future. And to me, it's so comforting that our salvation is based upon the covenant promises of God. Now, this is what distinguishes reformed churches or reformed theology. I'm not sure if I like the word theology always, but I can't think of a better one. This is what distinguishes reformed theology from other more general evangelical forms of theology or even those who who, who just hold to the five points of Calvinism. Holding to the five points of Calvinism does not make you reformed. It's much bigger thing than that. Truly reformed teaching and worship is based on the truth that God reveals himself and deals with us in a covenantal way. Covenant theology. Reformed theology is covenant theology. It's seeing the Bible and our relationship, our present relationship with God, in covenantal terms. And before we go too much further into the into Moses, I, I just want to lay the relay, if you like, this foundation among us that once again, that this, that this Bible, this Word of God, is a, is, a, is a covenantal story. It's a covenantal word. A great deal of the Bible is the story of Israel. And Paul says to them, pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, Romans 9 verse 4. Elsewhere in Ephesians 2 verse 12 he says that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. So you see when you think of the Old Testament and Israel as God's people Paul is thinking in covenantal terms. He's saying you used to be strangers to all these covenants but now you've been brought in. You're now part of the covenant. When we perhaps first become a Christian or we first begin to take Bible study seriously, the Bible can seem an awfully daunting book, can't it? Can't it? So many um, written over such a long period of time. It's not even presented in chronological form. It's not like a, it's not like a, a history book where you... You know, it's all it's all in order. It's all jumbled up chronologically, isn't it? And it's possible, and I know this. It's even possible to build up a good knowledge of the Bible, even to memorize a lot of the Bible. And I'm not against memorizing; that's good. But even if you memorize the Bible, you can still not know the Bible, really know it. 
Um, Because you never see the big picture. And I think this is where often people struggle. They never really understand the big story. They never get beyond the minutiae of a particular verse. Throughout the Bible, and this is really what I'm trying to share with you in this series, there is one central, single story. It's the message of salvation by a Redeemer. And we, and we will come on to see this very clearly in Exodus when we get to it properly. The Old Testament prophesies that the Saviour will come and the New Testament tells us that he has come and it tells us what he has done. And it's the message of salvation which is the, which is the unifying principle which connects all the different parts of scripture and makes it into a whole. Now, I'm going to try and help you to get that sunk into you. Because if you can crack that, if you can really see that and grasp it, that that you'll, you'll be well on your way to making sense of this Bible. So in the Reformed tradition... And I'm thinking now of this one plan of redemption that runs through the Bible. In the Reformed tradition, there is a term that is used to describe this running single story of redemption. And it's called the covenant of grace. And if we can understand and trace the covenant of grace, we will understand the Bible. And one of the important aspects of the covenant of grace, which is, is not, which is not a term you'll, we can't, it's not a term you'll find directly in the Bible. It's a theological term, but I think it's a useful one. One of the important aspects of the covenant of grace as a term is that it's conveying the fact that there has been and always will be only one way of salvation. Namely, by the sheer unmerited favour of God. And as we go on to study the law, I want us to hold on to this truth because there are some challenges, there are some difficulties, there are some disagreements. And I I don't want us to ignore the problems because we need to be robust when we come against false teaching. The way to be saved never changes there is only one covenant of grace but we notice in those verses we read from Paul that he talks about covenants in the plural not in the singular because the covenant of grace has its own history it has been administered in different periods of biblical time so we can say, and we'll go. On, I'll try and explain this better as we go through. Not necessarily tonight. There's one covenant of grace, one single covenant of grace, but there have been different administrations of that covenant of grace. Period of Moses, the time of the law, will be one of those. Now, this reformed view is not without challenge. Um, obviously liberals challenge it but I don't really think that 
we need to worry about that because they're not Christians. They don't believe the Bible anyway. But there, within the true church, there are those who do not accept that there always has and always will be only one way of salvation. These are known as dispensationalists. And although that's a general term and there's a wide variety of views within that general umbrella, ranging from the crazy to not that much different than what we believe, um, so we have to be careful about these labels. Um, but I would say the majority of dispensationalists believe that the Bible contains two different ways of salvation. There is one covenant for saving Jews in the past and in the future, and another covenant for saving Gentiles. According to the dispensationalist teaching, all are currently, all men, Jew or Gentile, are saved in this age by grace. So we've got agreement there. But they say the Jews in the Old Testament and the Jews in the millennium, in the future, will be saved by obeying the law of Moses. In contrast, Reformed Covenant theology insists that there is only one way to be saved in the past, the Old Testament, in the present and in the future. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, there is no salvation through the law. So, what is this covenant of grace? Um, we've, started, we, we've talked about this many times. This is some repetition, but sometimes you need to, I think it's helpful to review. What is this covenant of grace? Well, it's a covenant, obviously, which means it's an arrangement made by God alone. It's a, God's initiative. Um, and it's something which man either accepts or rejects. God makes the covenant, man accepts it or not. There's no other covenant to go to. And it's a covenant, an arrangement by God, but it's an arrangement of grace. It's a covenant of grace. What does grace mean? Well, grace means undeserved favour. It's more, it's more than, we often say grace is unmerited favour, but it's, it's not. It's more than that. Because we have positively done things to demerit ourselves from God's favour. It's not that we just haven't, we don't deserve it. We've done things which disqualify ourselves from it. We, we, it's demerited. We've demerited ourselves. So grace is divine favour manifested to people who deserve just the opposite of grace. That, that's a better definition. So put together, then, the covenant of grace is the arrangement whereby God planned to save man from the just consequences of his sin, misery, death, and damnation. And the story of the Bible is the story of that plan 
And that's the plan that we've been tracing and will trace in this series. If you remember, we studied man's need for the covenant of grace. We saw how that the first covenant God made with man in the Garden of Eden in Reformed theology is called the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Man had to perform certain works of obedience if he was to receive the promised blessings of God. God had promised eternal life to man if he would obey. He promised disobedience if he disobeyed. Well, you don't need me to tell you the story of that one, do you? Adam submitted to the authority of Satan rather than the authority of God. And all the terrible consequences of his decision has come upon us and the rest of the human race. Race. Our catechism says all mankind by the fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. There's not some quaint story, the Garden, the garden of Eden. You know, we, we come across a bit like a comic strip with a serpent and all the rest of it. It's real, dear friends. It means babies die, and babies get ill, and, and there's war, and death, and suffering. It's not a there's nothing comical about it. It's real. And Adam's, Adam's uh, rebellion is the reason for present pain and suffering, both in this life and in hell. And um, the breaking of the covenant of life changed everything, dear friends. Because it was no longer possible for man to keep God's law. Even if he desired to, he just couldn't. He, he could have. He had, Adam had every capability of keeping all the law of God. It was his choice to break it. He didn't have to. That choice isn't open to us by nature. Blessing, let alone salvation from sin, could not, can no longer be obtained through A covenant of works. That's why the dispensationalists are wrong. Because they're wrong about the Mosaic law. Because the law is not a means of salvation. Because it requires perfect human obedience to a perfect law given by a perfect God. And Jew or Gentile. We can't keep it. Rather, as Paul taught, the law was added in order to drive us into the arms of Christ and his grace. So the covenant of works is no longer possible. Therefore, how can any of us be saved from sin? Well, uh, the story of the Bible could have been very short. God would have been well within his rights to to end the story there, couldn't couldn't he? He God could have left man to perish. It would have been perfect justice. But we know from scripture that God had already devised a covenant of grace. Again our catechism states. God having out of his mere good pleasure. From all eternity elected some to everlasting life. 
did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. Now, now to write a sentence like that in a catechism, which is the Puritan—I'm talking about the um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism written by the Puritans—is our, is our catechism. It's our statement of faith. It's on the website. We need to use it because it's it's really really helpful. Now, to write something like that so clearly took thousands of years of progressive revelation in scripture None of, you couldn't have written that just from Genesis 3.15 you have to look back on the full revelation of scripture and that the fact that the church can now see the mysteries hidden but now revealed in the New Testament all those mysteries hidden concealed in the old are revealed in the new Truths of revelation repeated in many different ways, in many different times, until a, vo- until a vocabulary, a narrative of salvation was built up into the minds of God's people. And we'll go on to study this, this in, in Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch. I'm just going to read that again in the, you all know the story of Exodus. You, you all know the story of the bondage and the deliverance and the Redeemer. Just put the story of Exodus on top of this statement and you'll see how Exodus um, helps to build up this understanding of what salvation is. It says, God, think of Exodus now. God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. That's the story of Exodus, isn't it? It's the story, in fact, of the whole Bible. God's purpose, you see, in the covenant of grace, um, as it says there, it's, it's not, it really isn't to save all of mankind. God's plan has never been to save all of mankind, but rather a portion of mankind. In eternity, God chose from among fallen mankind. Those whom he purposed to save. We know this because it's so clear in, in, in Paul. Not just Paul, but particularly in Paul. Ephesians 1. According as he hath chosen in us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, under himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So this covenant of grace made by God for his elect church was conceived in eternity but progressively revealed in history, in time. 
And he gives his elect church, his elect people, certain promises and reveals that these can only be received on the basis of the work of his son, the mediator of the covenant of grace. And God demands only one requirement of, of a man to receive these blessings, namely faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even that, Paul teaches, is a gift of God. And so, having barely started really this study, and run out of time, we'll continue it I think next time. I want to emphasise that the promises um, the promise, promises given to Abraham flow through into Exodus to Leviticus into Numbers into Deuteronomy into Joshua God has promised to receive men not all men we don't understand this, but his elect, men, women, boys and girls, he will receive them back into his favour, give them forgiveness and eternal life and all the covenant blessings in the covenant of grace. Justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all these blessings flow to you and I today. Because of his, the fact that he's a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And he'll never fail. He'll, he'll never break his covenant. The covenant he made with Abraham. The covenant he made with his son Israel. The covenant he makes with you and me through his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll continue this next time as we think about how this flows through to the new covenant made by the Lord Jesus Christ. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com that's grace to seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.